Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. This episode of Game Devastation is brought to you by Pixel Dynamo. You can find the latest news, reviews, and updates to all the games that you care about. Check out PixelDynamo.com or follow them on Twitter at PixelDynamo for your up-to-the-second news on the games you care about. Also, in a less commercial way, this is a pretty sweet site. So if you haven't checked it out, PixelDynamo.com, go read it. I think I said PixelDynamo.com enough. PixelDynamo.com. Okay, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to Game Devastation. My name is Stefan Frost. I'm your host. Today I am joined with Greg. Oh man, it's so good already. I can't even say Greg. <laughs> Greg Kasavin. Sir, how are you doing this morning? Doing well. Thanks. Fantastic. We're not re-recording that, by the way. We're just going in. It's good. I don't even care. Yep. We're, we're just doing it. Um, okay, so Greg, you are the creative director at Supergiant Games. Is that correct? That's that's my title. Okay. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, so fantastic. What does a creative director do exactly? Uh, I do um, I do writing and uh, level design among among other things. Um, we we're a small team, so we're we're about a dozen people now, um, and so everybody kind of wears uh, many hats. But yeah, my job uh, my job revolves around a lot of the kind of the the fiction of our games, um, and and kind of putting it to work in context. So where did you guys get your start? Because you're a fairly new company, right? We're not that new anymore. We just celebrated our sixth uh, anniversary in September. So I think by like independent game studio standards, that makes us relatively old. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but you were, um, but still, you know, obviously compared to uh, a lot of, you know, a company like Blizzard or something. Yeah, we're we're a new kid on the block. Um, uh, we we got our start. Um, I and the the co-founders of the studio, we worked together at Electronic Arts in Los Angeles uh, on the Command and Conquer games. Um, and this was back in uh, two, 2000. I joined EA in 2007, but basically we, we all uh, went our separate ways in 2009. And this was around the time we were playing these games like uh, the, the, there was like a Braid and Castle Crashers and, and Plants vs. Zombies all came out in 2009. And I think for for us, these were the pretty eye-opening experiences of like these were super high-quality games that felt very personal, uh, and uh, and were made by small groups of people. And meanwhile, we were working on these much larger teams, kind of struggling to put something together. Um, so the idea of working on these kind of smaller projects um, uh, became became very appealing and. Uh, for Amir and Gavin, who are the co-founders of Supergiant, they just kind of dropped everything and moved into a house and and got to work on Bastion, uh, which ended up being our first game. Um, and uh, I, I joined them um, about a about a year in, into into that. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much where where we came from. You know, our uh, we our 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 influences, I think for sure, are a lot of uh, kind of classic games uh, from the from the 90s and from from different eras and so on and we thought how what it would be like 
if if games like that were kind of were still being made um and and were were developed with like more modern sensibilities toward uh, toward narrative and 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 all kinds of other uh, aspects so um yeah and thankfully uh bastion and subsequently transistor our second game they've both done well for us so we're we're still here and get a get to keep going which is which is all all we really want to do so that's that's pretty awesome um and before we kind of get into the the super giant games and stuff i wanted to talk to your past specifically where did you get your start in games yeah i got my start uh so so prior to getting into game development i worked on the media side of things for uh, more than 10 years um most notably i was editor-in-chief of GameSpot for for uh, quite a while um so that uh, but even even prior to that i kind of i'm one of those people who wanted to make games since i was a little kid i i've been playing games all my life uh you know from my earliest memories and and it was around literally like age of eight where i'm like i just want to I want to do this. I don't know how people made this, but I have some awareness that human beings actually made these things, and right. this is just what I want to do. Um, but when I got, uh, like, in, in high school and stuff, and actually even earlier, I, I dabbled on and off with, with programming, which was just kind of the obvious way I knew that games were programmed. Um, but I didn't I, I didn't really, you know, I, I frankly enjoyed playing games more than I enjoyed programming them. I, I struggled with uh, with the programming side of things. Uh, but what I found was that I really enjoyed writing. Um, and in high school, I started kind of putting those things together. I was playing so many games that I wanted to do something kind of productive with it. And I started writing about them, started a little uh, fanzine with a friend of mine I met on the then kind of fledgling commercial internet uh, and uh, kind of one thing led to another, and I ended up getting an internship at GameSpot, um, just like in my first, what was it, my first year of, of college. Uh, and I worked at GameSpot all through college and, and for many years uh, beyond. And, and um, it was something I really fell in love with also, but it, it was also one of those things where one day I kind of woke up and 10 years or so had flashed by, and I'm like, man, if I never... If I never give this another shot, I may, I, I think I'll always regret it if I never just sort of try to really seriously try to get into development. So in 2007, um, that's when uh, an, I got an opportunity to go work at EA on Command and Conquer. And that's, that's when I made uh, that particular transition. And it's certainly been a roller coaster ride uh, ever since, but uh, it's, it's certainly as well been kind of everything that I hoped for and also everything that I expected both for for better and for worse uh, I think anyone in game development could tell you that it's not always a, a bed of roses but so can you talk about that uh, that not bed of roses because uh, I, I think that certain there's a I think there's a conception of when people hear about games industry they understand that like there are layoffs and that there are you know problems in the industry but they yeah. don't fully understand like some people are like you just get to make games all day right yeah. like so yeah so I mean what does it, that mean to you yeah it's perceived as a, it's like often on on the list of dream jobs and stuff like that right so it's um and and I think like and I think it is one um I so so I I I think I'm gonna like sort of catch myself every few sentences as I talk about this because it's really I I do I do truly love this and and take uh and I'm very happy to sort of take the bad with the good I don't think there's anything that is just like all positive all the time at least I don't know what those things are 
Um, right. So, uh, but for sure, you know, the game industry is not, has not historically been the most stable of industries. Um, and that does mean things like what you, uh, what you said. Um, in my case, the way it's affected me is that um, when I, or as an example, um, when I took uh, the job at Electronic Arts, I didn't end up uh, relocating. So I commuted essentially from Northern California near San Francisco to the Los Angeles area, um, which is, you know, about 400 miles or certainly not a, not a normal drive uh, for, for like two and a half years. And really? I, yeah. Wait, so how does that work? Did, did you just I, say like, okay, during the week, I'm going to crash on somebody's couch and then the weekend I'm going to go back home? That uh, is is pretty close to it. Um, I, I basically would go to Los Angeles typically for two weeks at a time uh, where I had like a small apartment and literally slept on the floor for much of it on like a deflated air mattress because I didn't want to get comfortable um, in, in that environment. And then I would come home on, on weekends and then fly back on, on a red eye flight on Monday morning and just go straight to work from the airport. And I did that for two and a half years. Uh, it's not because we, I wouldn't have done it for that long had I known, uh, it was going to go on for that long, if that makes sense. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. I, if you I, knew I, that going in, you, you yeah. It, and yeah. it's, to me, it's one of those things where like, if, if people only knew some of the kind of, I think people would never do like accomplish anything of note if they only knew upfront, like sort of what it would take. Uh, I think people approach many endeavors with a, with a certain sense of optimism. Uh, even if they are like me and prone not to optimism, you still kind of want to hope for the best. And then you find yourself in the midst of uh, really difficult situations and you just have to push on through and, and try to make the best of it. Uh, so in my case, it's not like we planned to relocate. Um, we, we thought, you know, maybe six months or three months or something, and then it turned into two and a half years. Um, for one reason or another, and, uh, you know, at a certain point, yeah, like the job stability, uh, we, we like where we live uh, here in Northern California. And it's like, when the job started to look a little less stable, it's like, do we really want to uproot our whole family and take a gamble on this? Or what what do we think, you know, is going to happen in the next six months? So that uncertainty is certainly, uh, especially with like a young, uh, like an infant at home and stuff is, is pretty, uh, is pretty scary. Um but did, yeah. you, did you look at that like an investment though? When you were you you were saying like, okay, I'm not going to do the GameSpot thing anymore. I want to get into games, and this is my opportunity, and will probably lead me to something good. Right. Well, that that was like the most that was the most optimistic way that I could put it. I mean, for sure, li like an investment was what. Yeah that that was that was the best case scenario because fr like I took I took basically like uh, what was it. Um, I took like four significant pay cuts in a row in game development, um, starting with leaving GameSpot, you know, because I had 10 years of seniority and was, uh, and what, you know, I was editor in chief there and going from that into like a, my, my title when I started at EA was associate producer. So it was already not, it was not like a financially driven endeavor. And in fact, it was like pretty irresponsible uh, from a financial standpoint, it was like something that I felt I needed to do on a personal level. And thankfully my wife was just, my wife, Jenna was just very supportive of it, despite the fact that it didn't make a lot of sense on paper. Um, it was just something that I, I like felt I, I needed to do. Um, yeah. So it didn't, 
you know, now after after like eight years in game development, uh, thankfully at, at Supergiant, we're, you know, ironically at like a small independent studio, I feel more uh, security in every respect. Not 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 too much so because I still work in the game industry, mind you, but I feel more security than I did, you know, working at a large uh, corporation that theory should provide absolutely uh, security but um well i mean it makes sense right because there's um in a way it makes sense i mean yeah you're, you're a smaller company right you don't have as much to worry about the because you guys have had pretty successful games i'm sure that's that's keeping you afloat and around so is i guess the the kind of concern would probably be whatever we make next needs to keep us relevant right so that you can continue doing this sort of thing uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, though I think that's just always a concern when you, when you're making games. I, I find that to be like a positive uh, concern uh, if if such a thing can can exist. Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, the the part where we are small and like I, I don't have to worry about like a like a guy in a corner office like hundreds of miles away making some decision about me without ever having met me. That part is nice. Um, cause yeah, it's all, sure. it's all just, uh, up to us to, we, we'll, we'll succeed or fail together. Um, and that, and there's a, there's a big amount of comfort in that. Uh, certainly we experienced that while we were getting started at Supergiant, even though, you know, the odds were very heavily stacked against us, uh, as a new independent studio, there was, there was still a strange sense of, uh, not, not security, but like comfort in, in just knowing that, well, you're just. You, you might get totally screwed, but at least it's kind of going to be on on you if that happens. Or it might be just, you know, acts of God, as it were. <laughs> you might just get unlucky. Uh, luck certainly is a big component, uh, I think, in our successor and any small studio success these days. Um, but but uh, yeah, it, it's not going to be because of some decision by someone that you've never... Well, hopefully not. Anyway, <laughs> there's still, like I said, luck is certainly involved. Uh, but but yeah, when it's when when the main decision makers are just the people you see around you, that that can be nice. Gotcha. So okay, let, let's get into the the game development part uh, of the Super Giant stuff. So you said you joined in about a year after uh, the two founders started the company. Yeah. Um, does that mean that they kind of had a prototype ready to go, and then you came in? You're like, okay, I've got a story for this, guys. Or like, how did that work? Yeah, it's um, it's it is uh, something like that. Um, I was, uh, you know, when when those guys are just getting started, like I, I I was there for some of the formative discussions around what it could be. So it wasn't it wasn't like we there was never like an idea to like tack a story onto the game. There was always some sense that uh, there was an opportunity for it to have uh for bastion to have more of a narrative focus not not because you know because we felt in part that it just needed one it needed uh justification for the kind of decisions that went into it because we were making an action rpg that um you know heavily inspired by a game like say diablo 2 but with but with a tiny fraction of the scope of a game like diablo 2 so it's like how are you going to make an, an action RPG that isn't just totally terrible and, and totally like just very short of the mark of what is expected for a game in this genre? And it's like, well, you just need to justify what's there and what isn't there. Um, and narrative is something that can provide that um, for uh, to, to, you know, more specifically, it's like we don't have uh, seven character classes. We don't have like a hundred thousand weapons. We have 10 weapons. We have one character. So how can you, 
make that not seem bad? Well, you can make it specifically a story about this one character um, and how he's kind of isolated in this world and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, yeah, basically as the game was moving into production, um, that was when uh, it, that was when we, we just started talking again. Cause yeah, when those guys, like I said, I'd been commuting uh, for all that time and, and the idea of like going from that situation straight into like a startup company that was like, uh, an hour and a half drive away from where I lived in Northern California. That just like, like I thought it would just sort of shatter the remains of my personal life at that point. So I didn't think I could do it. Um, so I got a job at that point at, at 2k games where I worked for a year and then, and then basically, yeah, a year later we, we made it happen around the time Bastion was going into production. I didn't necessarily think, uh, I was ever going to wind up uh, reuniting, uh, with the guys at Supergiant, but they, but they were still friends, you know? Um, and, and, uh, then uh, when the opportunity came up to go work full time in this capacity and, uh, write stories for games and build content and stuff like that, like that, that's what I always wanted to do. So, um, once again, it was a conversation with the family to, Hey, I want to leave this good, stable job to go, work with a group of friends and our odds of success are almost nil. What do you say? Um, <laughs> right. And uh, thankfully I was able to, to make that work. But yeah, the, um, I basically joined Supergiant just as the game was about to be announced, uh, Bastion rather, and just as it was about to kind of go into full production, it had been in a prototyping phase uh, for about a year. So the, the interesting thing um that I've noticed on this show with talking people in general is there are some people that really take scope into consideration when they're making their game. Um, and it sounds like you guys did too, when you were, you're like, okay, well, how many of us do we have? You know, we can't make Diablo two cause clearly that's huge. And there's yeah. like four of us right now. So, um, it, it, is that something that as systems kind of got put in the game where you're like, uh, is this something that we can handle? Or was it kind of like, we have the plan from the beginning that plan didn't really deviate all that much because we we knew what the scope was. Yeah, so we're like I think um, I think one of the really valuable things we learned from having worked at Electronic Arts is um, is like a, a sense of production discipline because at EA we you know we shipped games on schedule we we had a discipline around doing that um, and and it was uh, really interesting to see how that was made to happen because uh, mountains were moved sometimes in order to to secure that um and and so i think i think when we went into something like supergiant where it just it was seven people in the end on on bastion we knew it was a very small team and we had to be super super pragmatic um about what we could and couldn't do um so so basically the way we build games in, in just a very, very tactical way. Um, there is not, um, uh, there is not like a lot of paper design there. There's basically zero paper design. Um, and, and anything, especially during, uh, during Bastion's time, like anything that couldn't be done in a couple of hours or say a day, we just wouldn't, we just wouldn't do at all. There, there was no such thing as like long-term, uh, feature planning. Um, it was only just like the, 
some sense of the content scope. And yeah, once once we had a firmer grasp of like what the game could possibly be, well, here's like a tight uh, story that could that could fit this. So we we would outline where we wanted to go, but for sure we would we would kind of like pivot as much as necessary, as much uh, as and fairly frequently, uh, just to just to uh, kind of keep moving forward. Um, and the idea of of working in this very tactical fashion, where all tasks are very small individually, it like kept the momentum high. Uh, it made it so that nobody gets bogged down in some like two month, you know, uh, big big crazy project where there's nothing to show for it until until it's all done. It's like banging out a level or doing some new um, recording, some new audio or or tuning a tuning a weapon. All of those things. Uh, individually could be done quite quickly um and so the game just started to come together before our before our eyes seemingly so when Um, when do you think that you guys found the core loop of what the game was how long did that take do you think before you got there that that took a long time um i mean the the early the early idea for it was the early idea was there uh within within weeks there's like a prototype of bastion that's only that was made in four weeks that has a lot of the a lot of the combat prototyping in it um but that's not the that's like the moment to moment play so that was prototyped in a month but that's not the loop uh the loop involves you know returning to the bastion basically the like the the 10 minute loop as it were is like you play through a level you return to the bastion and you kind of do something there and then you go back into another level that took like a year um, of, of prototyping different systems and, and just like what, how exactly the game would even be structured. And even, even things like the narration, uh, which, which uh, is I think core to the experience of Bastion. A lot of people assume that that idea was there from, from the beginning and it wasn't um, that only came about like four months into development or something like that. Um, so, so all those things, came together through just kind of experimentation and iteration uh, over the course of a year, which is also, yeah, the time when the team grew from two uh, to uh, to seven, um, which was which was the size kind of necessary for us to go into production and, and be able to like make more than more than like 20 minutes of, of the game. Right. So um, I wanted to ask you a bit about the, the narration and stuff. Like yeah. that. It's, it's such a big part of the game. Um, at what point did you kind of realize, damn, we need a narrator? Like, what was it that you wanted to explain these systems more, that you just wanted to add more story, and that's a good way of doing it? Like, how did you figure that out? Yeah, so there, there was always, uh, as, as, as I mentioned, there was always like, a, there was always an interest in in the game having, uh, in the game having a narrative, in having something to say, in in being about something, and being more than just fun to play. Um, we wanted to make a game that could hopefully leave a lasting and positive impression on people. And I think, and I think the rest of us think games with a strong narrative component often have a higher chance of achieving that. Um, and, and again, there was also this, there was this practical need to justify some of the design decisions, uh, to give context to them because otherwise we're just a bad action RPG. Um, so we knew that we wanted there to be a narrative component, but we also had these kind of stakes in the ground. Like 
whatever it is, it cannot interrupt the play experience. It cannot just be like walls of text uh, or, or cutscenes or any of that stuff, because this is a game that we want people to just pick up and start playing. So initially, those requirements seem to be very much at odds, and they were things that... Um, and, and so basically the narrative was like deferred on uh, for a while um, it, it, with the idea that it was still going to be there and there were uh, prototypes of like a text-based uh, character interaction and so on and, it, and none of it just felt right so one day uh, Amir who I mentioned he, he calls up uh, Darren who's our audio director and uh, he's living in New York with a guy named Logan Cunningham who's and the three of these guys are mutual friends from middle school and Logan is an actor in New York and it's like hey can Logan record a few lines for us because I just want to try this thing with voice. I want to try putting voice in the game because we've tried the stuff with text and it's not really working. So Logan records some stuff and the game looks like hot garbage at this point. There's It's all programmer art or, or rather designer art right? Uh, or like scans from D&D books and stuff. It's super placeholder. But as soon as the voiceover goes in there, something happens and it starts to have a tone um, and it starts to feel like something. So the, the moment any sort of human words went into the game, it was it was interesting and positive. And then from there, um, it was like it was a matter of aligning that with with the with the story ideas. And the story was always going to be about this like or or the, the early ideas for the story were about this location called the Bastion where you meet this mysterious caretaker um, and you and you kind of help him save the world, essentially, or that's that's the setup. Um, and, and it's like, oh, maybe the narrator could just be this mysterious caretaker. And, uh, so, so yeah, it kind of evolved from there. And then we, we found, we found the, the voice, uh, going for this kind of, uh, Cormac McCarthy style delivery rather than just the conventional kind of fantasy narrator, um, this fantasy frontier world that was, that was appealing. And then, um, and then, you know, there, there w- we would run into parts of the game where, like, narration hadn't been recorded for them yet. And it's like, man, it's, it's really just better when the narrator is present. So we should just make him present through the whole thing. Um, and that's kind of and, – and he can, he's never going to repeat himself because it's, it's just got to feel like a story. Uh, and that's basically how, how all that uh, came about, how, what the thought process was behind it. That's great because I mean, you guys are adapting at this point. It's not like you know this is the one set way we're going to do it. You find yeah. out something that works, you then continue to expand and make that more awesome as you go. It's, that's really cool. Yeah, that's exactly uh, that's exactly the case with with that aspect, and and even like even the part where it became when we were going to announce the game and reveal it for the first time, which was at PAX in in twenty ten we thought that the narration was going to be pretty polarizing. We thought that some people would love it and some people would be like, can I turn this off or whatever? <laughs> uh, and, and the re- response to it was, we, we were just, blo- we were blown away. We, we, not only was it the, it just ended up being kind of the standout feature of the game, which we didn't necessarily expect. Uh, and, and we also didn't expect like, uh, the, the kind of response to it that we got because we, we didn't think it was, you know, we didn't think it was like, there were certainly other games that had heavily relied on narration 
before. Um, and and I, I, I love those games. That's part of why I wanted to like pursue this, this kind of technique extensively. Um, so, so it was interesting that we got a lot, kind of, we got a lot of credit for it. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, I think it's because we took it to, to sort of an extreme that, that other games that rely on narrators, they, they don't like solely rely on narrators. I'm thinking like Max Payne and Prince of Persia, the sands of time. They right. have really good and interesting narration in them, but they also have these cool, you know, cutscenes and other aspects of their presentation that are very noteworthy. So the narration isn't necessarily the part that stands out. Whereas with Bastion, that was kind of like the one, the one way it had a very focused way of delivering the narrative. It also um, seems to be going throughout the whole experience, right? Yeah. Max Payne, it would be kind of like at little spots, right? Where he would be, you know, towards the end of the level or maybe towards the yeah, beginning to right. kind of set it up. Whereas Bastion, it seemed to be a lot more omnipresent and yeah. happen a lot more frequently. So very, very awesome. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about uh, a little bit. You were talking about the RPG, action RPG elements mm-hmm. of the game. A big part of RPGs is is progression and I wanted to talk to you about what you think makes a good progression system and what, you know, Bastion used to kind of do that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a, a good, I think a good progression system is, is one where you, you feel, uh, you feel the character's growth, um, both, both on like a, both short-term and long-term um, and where, where you feel informed as a player to make decisions about it um, where the decisions have meaning. Um, I think there, there are plenty of classic RPGs that actually don't have any decision-making in the growth, like even like classic final fantasy games. There's just like linear character progression. I guess you still had like equipment choices, but generally you're just like replacing equipment with better equipment there isn't like you know right. you're the, not really... the choice is obvious on that one yeah, like, yeah even even still like you you felt your character uh, becoming becoming more more powerful but i i think that for me you know i have this i do have this kind of narrative uh slant toward toward things and, and i think that when progression systems are given context in the world of the game it can make a really uh potent difference so in, you know, whatever you following this Final Fantasy example, there's like a moment in what was it? Final Fantasy four or something. You you're trying to track down the the meteor spell or something like that. Like when you finally earn the spell because it's a part of the story, it's a really big deal. So in um, just systems that are grounded in the world of the game and are sort of peculiar to the world of the game. So in, in Bastion's case, it's like we knew we wanted a character upgrade system. Um, and we, we were thinking about how to, and we didn't just want it to be like perks or whatever because perks are fallouts thing. Um, you know, and, and part of why perks are so good in fallout is because they feel like they, they come from fallout. So, and the way it took shape in Bastion was there are these, uh, there are these spirits. It's basically like an underage drinking system <laughs> that, that we thought, um, like pretty literally that it's like the kid, uh, reaching up for bottles of uh, mysterious uh, spirits and you, you, you drink these things and you get more powerful. Like the message there is not necessarily (laughs) uh, 
that good of one, but we thought it it uh it was expressive of the world of the game. Um and you you um and you uh, hopefully, you know, you get to experience the game as it is and then when you get access to these various spirits and you read about the things they do, you can extrapolate um how they will affect your experience and 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 uh do do some do some planning around them i think kind of like uh the theory crafting around character progression is really a big part of the fun so such a system uh should be kind of clear enough to where the player can can infer uh if i make this choice my character is going to feel this way or that way and then make those choices and then hopefully sort of ha the game delivers on on that um on what you wanted uh, like um one of my favorite uh, progression systems in a game was in uh, i guess Baldur's Gate 2 which was just based on D&D &D, right but D&D &D, of course is a classic uh, progression system but Baldur's Gate 2 uh, interpreted it really well so in that game i just remember having this experience where like from the first moment i'm like i'm going to plan my character to be this way um based on all these available choices and then and then i just like then it was just this really long term um plan that i had to like spec out my character and then it totally worked um and it it like you know 20 hours later i had the character that i wanted to make and it, it that felt really rewarding um not just when i got there but but along the way as i was kind of getting closer to that point gotcha so i wanted to talk a little bit about transistor um and as a segue into that, I, I guess I want to ask, what did you take from Bastion into the development of Transistor? Yeah, we, um, I think our main, like our main uh, objective with Transistor was, it was to see if we could make another game that could stand on its own two feet. Like we really enjoyed making uh, a self-contained world and, with its own gameplay that felt kind of at home in that world in Bastion. And then we essentially, we were willing to throw out or to, to kind of set aside a lot of our, a lot of the wisdom that we gained, I think creating Bastion for the sake of trying to create something new, even though it was something that we considered to be in the same genre. Uh, so even when uh, the, the result was, something similar to bastion uh, for example the 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 camera perspective you know both transistor and bastion are isometric games none of those decisions are decisions that we made sort of out of hand of like it was never like well this worked in bastion so let's do it again uh we always went through the exploration again sometimes to arrive at the same conclusion but if anything um there were a number of things that we didn't want to do because we did them in Bastion, not because they didn't work, but because they felt proprietary to the experience of Bastion. And we wanted to see if we could make uh, a whole, a whole new experience with transistor in this kind of uh, sci-fi uh, setting. So uh, I think we made it harder on ourselves in that regard, but, but again, you know, we wanted to make something new. Um, I think if we just like set out to make a sequel to Bastion or something in certain ways, um, our lives would have been easier, but I think in other ways it would have been harder. I think, I think sequels are, are, uh, deceptively difficult at least to, to sort of, um, to really fulfill, um, 
the 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 potential of them is is really difficult because people have already kind of experienced the surprise and wonder of being in that world once and so to re you recapture that a second time i think is really really hard yeah and to deliver on the expectations of what you had before and they yeah. they had that surprise and uh, joy in experiencing something and they're like I get to experience that again and to yeah. do that is, is not always easy um, I, I wanted to ask about um, the story of Transistor was this something that you guys that you I guess because you're more on the story side is this something that you kind of had in your head from a while ago like I want to make a game that's kind of like this uh, or was it that you know you started having conversations with people you saw the systems and things like that and the story kind of came from that uh, it's, it's a little, it's really a little of each. It's so it, like the real answer to this is so like labyrinthine that I probably couldn't even explain it to myself, much less to someone else. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it just like we, we develop those aspects in parallel, but for, we're, we're very much, we're very much a gameplay driven studio. Um, the gameplay and the game design absolutely comes first. Um, and we try to develop narrative in parallel with that to support that and, and kind of enrich that as much as possible. But we don't do the thing where like, there's an idea for a story and let's build game systems to support, to support the story. Um, sometimes on a micro level, there are moments like that, but, but, um, that is not like where, uh, the ideas for our games uh, take shape. Uh, but but nevertheless, in the case of Transistor, there was there were aspects of the story that that were some of the oldest ideas on that project. Um, and as and as the gameplay took shape, we and we 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 already myself included, we all thought that we had like moved past some of the some of the specific story ideas and and suddenly more than a year into the into the kind of pre-production, we realized, oh wait, like this this actually would would totally this this would work um and for us like we we just never feel bound to our ideas so over time there's a lot of, we place a lot of value in ideas that just naturally tend to stick with us um if that makes sense because because there's no like there's no commitment or assumption on on anything during pre-production whether it comes to story or to gameplay or whatever so when when a certain idea whether for a story or for a game system when when it's not sort of when people just like it on the team over a long period of time that carries a lot of weight for us and we're like hey maybe we we just don't have a better idea than this and this idea has sort of survived over a long period of time so so that's the one <laughs> that gets to stay um that's often how uh aspects of our game sort of cement themselves um not because we know from the moment that we put from the moment that we kind of prototype the thing that, Oh, this is it. We, we usually don't have those kind of revelatory moments. It's usually much more subtle where like months later <laughs> we'll realize that, Oh, this hasn't changed and this is working. So, um, so the story aspects, some aspects of the story are a little like that. Uh, but, but we did start up front with a, with a desire to make um, a science fiction story with a particular uh, slant so the uh, essentially a love story um we wanted to see what we could do with that and we wanted to see what we could do with a science fiction world that was like 
that we approached in the same way as we approached a fantasy world in Bastion, because I don't think Bastion's world is conventional as a fantasy world. And, um, you know, in turn, we started with this kind of cyberpunk aesthetic for Transistor, but I think it like, it just took on its own character. Um, and hopefully that expresses itself to, to players as well. Uh, but um, yeah, we wanted to see what we could do with that. So when you were writing this stuff and, and mm-hmm. kind of working with through mechanics and all that, were you influenced by anything art and story wise to kind of help uh, sort of start a foundation for this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, this is always hard for me to, to talk about because there's so, there's so much um, and, and our, our games are such like a, I think in a lot of ways are kind of a hodgepodge of influences um, from, from games and other, and other media. Um, I think from like a raw um, science fiction standpoint, the, the influences are more in the, in sort of the domain of, of the work of like Philip K. Dick or something like that. We were more interested in, like I said, the, there, there's also the, like the, whatever the William Gibson like like that subgenre of science fiction was more appealing to us than like laser guns and spaceships and intergalactic warfare or anything like that. Like we wanted it to be an anachronistic kind of setting and movies that we were looking at and thinking about were things like uh, Dark City and and The Matrix and Inception and so on, like the first Matrix or whatever back back before everybody knew what the matrix was and decided it was dumb. Like the, the kind of the sense of surprise and wonder around the original film was uh, like, uh, was, was very exciting. Um, and that kind of, that kind of setting that's like quasi modern and you can't quite put your finger on it and you're trying to understand what's going on. And these themes of, of kind of uh, un- uncertainty is uh, very prevalent through uh, Philip K. Dick's stories of like what uh, the, the nature of the, reality around around the characters and the story and so on we we thought that those kind of themes those kind of themes really resonated uh for us and we wanted to but but you know we wanted to tell this kind of more personal story within that uh type of uh world setting um but that that's just on the narrative side uh we wanted to do we uh you know on on the gameplay side the the influences were some I, I mentioned Baldur's Gate before? We did uh, actually draw a lot of influence from um, like uh, tactical RPGs and turn-based strategy games, and wanted to see if we could capture the the the, the pleasures of of that style of game, but in this like pick-up-and-play action RPG context, where we could essentially sort of trick people into playing a strategy game without them realizing that that's what they were doing, because when you think of strategy games, oh, it's this going to be this stodgy, you know, moving chess pieces around sort of thing. Like, no, it's not like that at all. There's a ton of suspense um, and and uh, drama when you're playing a good strategy game. Um, and so, you know, having come from making this very action-packed game, and ba- Bastion was an action RPG with the emphasis on action, and this time we wanted to make an action RPG w- with an emphasis on the kind of de- deliberate moment to moment decision making in transistor and that lended itself to this more um like it 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 aligned with what we wanted to do from a science fiction standpoint and this more kind of intimate more personal um story between two characters now um the music 
seemed to to be a pretty big component of the game. Um, yeah. How did you guys sort of get the um, the vibe that you wanted to get um, out of that, and and how was it working with uh, musicians to kind of get this stuff working, or or did you as much, and you just had an audio guy and he he handled that? Like, how did that work? Yeah, so uh, Darren Korb is our audio director and composer. Uh, he worked on both uh, Bastion and Transistor, and and the the music in Bastion was one of the things that that stood out to a lot of people that that we didn't we didn't like. Uh, we I think we surprised people with the music in that game, and we, there were some moments in the game where we used music in a very deliberate way. Um, and and those moments I think were really successful. Um, so in so in going into Transistor, we knew that people liked the music that Darren was capable of creating, and that we were capable of sort of integrating into our stories. And we uh, we wanted to put it much more up front, like front and center, to the point where the main character of Transistor is herself a, a singer, and and it's just really key to her to her entire being. Um, and we wanted to, we wanted to create as part of the goals of the setting. Like we wanted to justify being able to have a lot more of this type of, a lot more like vocal pieces in the game. And we're like, what if they're actual songs from the character that you were playing as? Um, so that was, that was the motive, uh, there up front. Um, and, and, uh, it, you know, it, it, but it was working with the same, the same individuals we worked with on, on Bastion, where it was Darren and uh, the, the vocalist is Ashley Barrett, um, who is a friend of Darren's and they just, uh, they do, uh, they do great work together. But, you know, for Darren, uh, for sure there was, um, like for all of us, I think we all spent uh, a, a long, uh, like a pretty long time. The game was like a year and a half in pre-production as we were trying to find the tone uh, for it, uh, for the, for the music and everything. And in the end, what we did was we uh, we created like a tone video. And Darren was one of the people. Uh, Darren was the person who who like pushed for this initially. He's like, let's just try to pull this all together and make uh, make a like combine the art and the writing and the music all in one sort of video that we can look at as a team and say, yes, this is what we're doing. Um, and we made, uh, and that was where, um, Darren made the first piece of music that ended up really sticking. Um, he later adapted some of his other pieces, but yeah, we were going for this kind of, um, it's this more, uh, classical setting. So Darren has kind of these jazz themes in there um almost like a noir feel to some of it um but there there's some kind of old world european instruments there too mixed with this like more modern beat and then we just wanted to do a lot of stuff with the interactivity around the music throughout the experience because we we think that's very potent in games so yeah music and audio is something that we just invest in very heavily um i think part of why certainly a huge a huge part of why it's successful is, is Darren's raw talent. Um, but I think we set ourselves up for success in that regard in part, because we are thinking about it from the very beginning and we're working on it from the very beginning. We don't just like commission Darren in the last six months to give us a bunch of music and then plug it in. We're like working on the integration of music and audio, um, as a core part of the game experience, uh, all throughout. So, 
something else I wanted to kind of ask, and this is a little bit more meta, but um, yeah. what do you think uh, are the three more important rules of game development since you've been working at Supergiant and in the industry in general? Oh, man. I know it's um, big. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is <laughs> big. Um, you know, th- this is... I, I, I don't, I, I wish I knew it's like, I, the thing that's coming to mind is, is the awful, you know, the only rule is that there are no rules like sort of thing. Uh, (laughs) It's like, it's, I wish, I wish I felt that with each year of experience, my, my like comfort level and my domain expertise increased. Um, I'm now getting to the point where I've been in game development for almost as long as I was in the gaming press. And by the end of my time in the gaming press, that was always like really intense work. And I never felt like I was able to get my head above water, but I did feel like I generally kind of knew what I was doing. Whereas in game development, I think it is much, much murkier for me. Um, There's some things I have a great deal of confidence about. And, and like when it comes to my, my views on games, I, I feel a considerable amount of certainty, but, but when it comes to just trying to build good games one after another, um, each, each game I've ever worked on just almost felt like starting over. Um, but, uh, having, having said all that, I, I think like, I think success. I I think like pick your battles is probably the number one rule for me. Um, be, and and that's just another way of saying uh, collaborate. Uh, like how you collaborate is probably the most important thing. Assuming you are working with other people, there's some extraordinarily talented developers who can do everything themselves, but most of us are not that. And and um, being working well with others, um, seeking empathy for the people around you, trying to understand what they're going through, and trying to support them, and in turn, you know, helping them to understand what you're going through. I think I think that is the key to successful teamwork and, and subsequently to, to making good games. Um, I think, I think maintaining, uh, like a passion for the material is important. Um, I think there's some game developers who, I, I, one of the surprises for me when I got into game development was that there were a bunch of game developers who didn't seem that into games. Like they, and, and after a while I did understand it. Like they, it's it's what they do all day so they go home they don't want to deal with it but i'm like man how could you like how can you make good games if you if you don't like if you, if you don't love if you don't love games and go home and want to play cool games and stuff like that um See, i think I, i'm i'm the same way with you right there and i'm also the same about your own game and making sure that you play the hell out of that yeah yes like the, that that to me is something that I found it at some companies, you know, you'd have uh, certain members of staff that maybe programmers or something that, that were like, look, I've been I, my time is better suited towards making this game rather than like playing it and understanding it. Um, and I think that's actually 
I, I disagree um, simply because I think when you have an understanding and you can find out what's what's bad about things, you can make them better. Yeah. So. Not only that, I, I think like I so I agree very strongly as well. And I, I think a lot of the, the kind of the, the really magical stuff in games is the stuff that like. I think often does not go on the schedule. It's like the it's the unnecessary stuff. It's the first stuff to get cut when you're like having the scope and whatever. So it's the stuff that comes from people who do play who do play the game and who do see those little opportunities to include um, just to enhance what's already happening there or to include the little surprises. I mean, there's a, there's a tension there because it it can turn into horrible feature creep and stuff also. So it has to be done carefully. But um, I think unless you, unless you're like looking at your game a lot, you're not going to, and, and playing it and experiencing it, you're you're not going to make the most of those little opportunities, um, and and just kind of sometimes you play a game where you just get the impression that the people who made it really cared about it, and I I think those are those are my favorite kinds of games where they they're just like filled with these great little details that didn't strictly have to be there. Um, and, uh, those are the kind of games I want to make. And, and yeah, I think that comes from working with people who, who are identifying those things in their own game or, and also identifying those things in other games, um, and, and is sort of getting inspired that way. Um, and, and I think, so that was a couple of things. I think the last thing is, yeah, I mean, it is, it is really important to, um, stick your head, uh, out of the sand from time to time and to, and to constantly work on achieving a sense of balance in your life. Um, I think that that is just an ongoing effort. It's like, it's like trying to, it's like being at the bottom of a sand dune and shoveling sand out. It's like constantly like, like the balance of your life I think is constantly at risk of being, overthrown when you work in game development at least for many of us and so it requires conscious ongoing effort to maintain it to 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 maintain one's one's health um both mental and physical and and understanding how if you want to work in games for the long haul it's important and yeah you might want to just it may seem like a great heroic act to crunch like crazy for six months or something just to ship a video game but guess what like you're going to work on a bunch of games in your career and if you burn out just making this one that's not good um so finding that balance in my experience is extraordinarily difficult and i think at best i've found it for like maybe weeks or months at a time (laughs) um but but for me it's just a constant challenge but but something uh but something that took me many years even to accept was important because i used to just think that i used to just think that hard work was like the highest of the highest value but but hard work can uh can burn somebody out uh if if left unchecked um, so we, we want to do this. We want this to be our careers, 
you know, we want we want to make games for as long as we can, and that means finding sustainable ways to do it and and to do good work over time. And it ties right back to that to that first point of like being a good you can't be a good collaborator if you're just if you're fried because then you're testy, you're you're becoming a jerk. Um, everybody has to walk on eggshells around you because you've been working so hard. Nobody can ask you to do anything because you're just going to, you know, cause, cause you're already totally overworked, blah, blah, blah. Like you don't want to be that guy. Uh, you want to be the guy where, uh, any of your colleagues can come to you with anything at any time. That's, that's like the, the, the perfect, you know, person to work with at a game studio. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to achieve that, I think, but it's an ongoing, you know, we can, we can still try. Yeah, absolutely. So following that uh, round of advice, I've got one last question for you, yeah. and I think we'll, we'll call it a day on the interview here. Um, what advice do you have for people that are looking to get into the industry? You know, you were talking about being a producer at one point in time, uh, you're a creative director now. For, for people that want to get into production or being a creative director or narrative designer or level designer, how do they do that? Yeah, I think... Um it's it's hard for me to it's hard for me to give uh, blanket advice because I find I find that everyone's like, like if there was good advice everyone would just do that thing and 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 it would just I I think the reality is everyone has really different stories of how they got in um, and that just goes to show that there isn't um, a conventional method but I think I think these days what is really valuable is just to go just go and start doing the thing that you would like for someone to eventually that you would like to be your job one day right like the these days the barrier to entry to start making games has never been lower and regardless of whether like you you don't need to know anything at all to start making games you just need time the only thing you need to know is how to read i guess though even that you just need to know how to like watch a video on youtube or something there there's so many tutorials out there and so on so if you want to you know start making narrative games you can pick up twine or something like that and just start start making them um or or pick up unity or pick up game maker there are these great really powerful tools out there where you can start making games and someone like me well, I, I had I had some relatively clear sense of the kind of stuff I wanted to do, but I, I think there are a lot of people who want to make games, who want to work in games, but don't quite know kind of where their area of expertise is. And the nice thing about like something like Game Maker is you 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 could just start doing a little of everything, and um, finding that balance between being a generalist and being a specialist, I think, is really tricky and really valuable at the same time because at game companies, you know. They're looking for people who are the best in the world at what they do, but also who can do a bunch of different stuff. And like that's that's paradoxical. Um, it's very hard to to be that person. Um, so the best you could do is just start creating actual work, uh, start contributing to games, join communities of people making games. Just let that stuff come naturally, um, and then and you know, hope for the best, I guess. That's not exactly how I got into games, but that's how I, I, that's, that's roughly how I got into writing about games, which was similarly like a, 
kind of a closed door environment where unless you knew people who were already doing it, like you had very little chance of getting in. Um, but, but yeah, no, no one is going to, no one's going to give you a job. I think based on your potential, they're just going to, at least not usually they, they want to see what real work you've done. Um, and so it's, it's just a, it's just taking the time to, to start, to start doing and, and, and figuring out through that process, what, what you, what it is you really want to do and what, where, where your talents really lie, um, where your, where, where your disposition is as a, as a game developer. Um, and I think that's just, a I think that's kind of like an individual process or other people, you know, they meet folks in college or they join, like, uh, they go to like game design courses and stuff like that. I, I still don't think there's any, there's any standard there, but there there's, I think, yeah, there's no time like the present, just, just block out time, set up a daily outlook reminder or whatever, spend two hours a day tinkering away at game maker or twine or whatever, and just, just start making stuff and see where it, see where it takes you. That's, that's what I would do if I was getting started today. I think that's great advice. Um, yeah, there was, there's was actually a, um, article that I just read from Ben Brode, who's one of the main designers oh, yeah. on, uh, Hearthstone. Yes. Yeah. And he had this great point and I think he had like the top five ways that you can get in the game industry. And one of them was luck. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That is uh, so accurate. Um, but I think part of that luck stems from you being determined to do something right. Like you work really hard at something and maybe something comes along that gives you the opportunity based off of the fact that you've been working hard. Yeah. And that's where the luck is. It's not so much like there's some dude on the street and uh, he's like, hey, I'm a video game executive. Let me give you a job. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't happen. The, you you see it a lot with like uh, I see it often with like screenwriters and st- or, or with writers in general. You, you look at I mean, the, there are these extreme cases like J.K. Rowling or something like that. But you have these people where they they've written like a thousand screenplays or whatever. And then suddenly suddenly they're like they win, you know, for best screenplay at the Academy Awards or so. and and you see that and like oh this person's so successful and they're they're so they're so talented it's like they they really paid their dues they they were just kind of driven by i think that was the um uh what was it uh, the i think that was how mad uh, that's how mad men mad men has a story like that i think where yeah it's this big successful tv show but you read about how that show was conceived and like that guy was just toiling away. He had that idea for such a long period of time and was just toiling away at it and kind of failure after failure and whatever. And one day it finally happened and yeah, he got lucky, but at the same time, uh, exactly like what you were saying, he just sort of rolled the dice enough times to where, uh, he, he allowed himself to get lucky. Like if you, if you never, if you never take a shot at it, um, then, then it's never going to happen. But if you just, I think if your motives are pure kind of around the, the, the work itself, if you're not just trying to like, if it's coming from that place of just the, the, the creative intent behind the thing and you, you just keep uh, plugging away at it. It's no, it's by no means any guarantee of success, uh, sadly, and hard work is no guarantee of success either, sadly. But um, I think, I think those are the things that best uh, create the circumstances where, maybe one day um it turns out well 
And that's that, that's enough for for some of us to go on these days, I guess. Very true. Um, okay, so I'm going to call it a day there. Good, yeah. sir. Uh, I really thank you for your time. It was uh, interesting talking with you today. Uh, is there any sort of, uh, you know, website or anything you want to call out for people to go check out? Oh, yeah. Well, we're, we're Supergiant Games, uh, which can be found on both the internet and on Twitter, the subset of the internet. Yeah, so come come say hi. Like I said, we're a small team, so you uh, we're we're easy to find and, and get a hold of, and we we like always like hearing from people and sharing our experience. So yeah, thank you uh, for having me on the show. Yeah, no problems. And if you guys want to hear more episodes of Game Devastation, all you have to do is go to patreon.com backslash Stefan Frost. There are episodes there. You can look at it up on uh, iTunes. You can also go to Podbean. Uh, there's stuff there as well. Uh, and once again, guys, I really appreciate you checking out the show. If you could give it a like, or you don't give likes on iTunes, but if you rate it five stars or something, if you're gonna rate it one, just don't bother. I don't want, I don't want one star. Just give me the five. Uh, but if you could rate it, I would really appreciate it. Thank you guys for checking out the show. Adios.